0: Hey guys, um, good to see all of you and uh, especially thankful to see those of you who I don't know yet. So my name's Brian, really, really glad uh, to see you. And this is a great week if you're new here, if this is your first time here uh, to be here because we've been going verse by verse uh, through the book of 1 Timothy and after we get done with that, we will go into 2 Timothy and tonight is actually going to mark a shift in the letter that Paul has been writing to Timothy. Um, What we've been seeing basically for several weeks is Paul saying how people are supposed to think rightly about who God is. Uh, Maybe the first half of the book we could call godly thinking, okay? And tonight what's going to happen is a transition in Paul's letter to Timothy that will all be about godly living, Godly living, okay? So the first half of the book has largely been godly thinking, the ways to think rightly about who God is. And now that we're moving into uh, the second part of this book and the second part of this series, it's basically the way we should live in light of what we believe. Uh, the way I think about it very much is... Um, Basically, uh, have any of y'all been to Ikea, the new Ikea in Centennial? I think about it when I went to Ikea uh, a couple weeks ago for the very first time. And if you know anything about Ikea, it's insanely cheap, isn't it? So you go to Ikea and you pull up and you see these giant advertisements. And anytime I see like what they advertise their chairs for, I always think to myself, okay, it's one of two situations. Either you were doing something illegal to be able to sell me a chair for $4 or like I unknowingly just stepped into a time machine Because everything here is priced like the way it would be in the 1950s. I'm expecting to pay like a nickel for a cheeseburger or something like that. And so what happens because of all this great advertising is people go in and you just buy a ton of stuff, a lot of times stuff that you don't even need because it's such a great deal, right? Any of you who are married, it's like, but it's such a great deal. We don't need it, but it's such a great deal. And so you come home with a bunch of stuff that you don't need. And what happens? The catch with Ikea is what? You always have to assemble it yourself, don't you? which is bad news for a guy like me, because I'm not handy whatsoever. It never goes well for me when I have to do anything around the house. Ask my wife. But fortunately, what do they provide in the box? They provide for you instructions. Instructions. And on the front of the instructions are a picture of what your assembling is supposed to look like, right? The way the chair, the the couch, the lamp is supposed to look. And the entire point is so that when you get done, a guy like me can look at what I assembled and be like, okay, this chair has two, two legs, like the picture has four legs, something has gone wrong here, right? It's like, bing, like the light bulb goes off, something has gone wrong here. And that's exactly what Paul is about to do for us. What he's going to do is start providing pictures. He's going to start providing pictures for us to look at, to know if, if, if basically we are thinking rightly about who God is. And if we match up our lives, if you match up your life, if I match up my life, in light of the life that Paul presents as a picture, and it's something different than the picture that Paul presents, then the reality is something has gone horribly wrong in the process of assembly. You with me? Okay, you with me? So here is the first picture that Paul is going to present to us in light of godly living. He is going to say that you and I are meant to live in community. You and I are meant to commit ourselves to a spiritual family called the church. Okay, so picture number one is a follower of Jesus who is committed to a family called... The church, that's the means, that's the avenue, that's the primary uh, environment in which God intends for you to experience true and meaningful community. Now, here's the thing about Denver. I I haven't lived here very long. I've lived here just since January, but I knew I was going to move here for a while. And in that process, one of the biggest observations I made about Denver is that even though the city is full of young, sociable, talented individuals who live very close to young, talented, sociable individuals, the reality is, is people here are lonely. I see see that over and over and over again. People who've lived here, you know, a year, five years, 10 years, 15 years. I'll have conversations with people throughout the week that say, I've lived here for 15 years and I don't feel like I have anybody who I can really talk to. I don't feel like I know anybody and I don't feel like I'm really known. Sure, there's people I can grab a drink with. Sure, there's people I can go to a game with. Sure, there's people I can hang out with. But in the end, I am lonely. I'm lonely. This is the great paradox, especially for those of you who are in my generation, that we face. It's a weird paradox. It's not just, it's not just in Denver. It's throughout American culture. Because on one hand, we hate to be alone. We hate to be alone. We know we are wired to know other people and to be known by other people. And if you disagree with me, if you're extremely introverted, I mean, my observation has been, it's interesting. Even if you watch a documentary about prison, what is the worst, what is the worst punishment somebody in prison can get? solitary confinement. Why? Because the worst thing you can do to somebody else is remove them from community. And so we're wired in such a way that we have to know people and be known by other people. But what happens? But what happens is because we're scared of what will happen when we know people and we're known by other people. What we do is we have our primary vehicles, our primary platforms for getting a taste of community, for getting our fix of community are things like text messaging or things like social networking, which in the end don't provide any sort of meaningful, lasting fulfillment to experience true true community it gives you a taste it gives you a fix but it doesn't fulfill you and what paul is going to say tonight is you and i no matter what you believe about god no matter what your background is no matter what type of home you grew up in the longing in your heart to know people and to be known by people the longing in your heart for deep meaningful lasting community is meant to happen in the avenue of the church and that church is a family okay that church is a family now look Look at chapter five, verse one, where Paul's going to start by saying this, writing to his young friend, Timothy, two of the earliest followers of Jesus in the history of the world. Here's what Paul writes. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Now here's what Paul's saying here is the church is like a family. You heard Andy say it. You've heard me say it. If you've been with us more than three weeks, you've heard us say it every single week almost, that we believe that the church is a family. And hopefully what you see here is we don't say that just because we think it sounds cool or it may look cool on the back of a t-shirt one day. It's biblical. It's biblical. And so that shapes our vision. The church is a family. And this has been the story. that that has been written throughout the entirety of church history. Anytime you saw Paul go into a city and share the gospel, and anytime you saw people turn from sin and become followers of Jesus, what happened was not just that people were saved, but new churches, new families sprung up wherever they went. And this was tremendously good news. This is tremendously good news because the, the, the cities that Paul was going into were amazingly hostile to the gospel, amazingly hostile to the gospel, and, and a profession to follow Jesus, a commitment to follow Jesus, a rejection of the faith that you had grown up in, a rejection of the faith of the state that you grew up in. It meant that you're going to be isolated from your biological family, it meant that you're going to be isolated from your coworkers, we going to that you couldn't even find a job. And can you imagine what good news it was for Paul to come in and say, you don't have to do life alone just because you follow Jesus. You have older men, older women. You have younger men, younger women. That the church is meant to encompass the entirety, the entirety of humanity. This would have been such good news. that you don't have to be alone. You have brothers and sisters. You have moms and dads in God's family. It's still this way throughout the world. Many of you know, we support a missionary in a region of, of Asia where it's 99% Muslim. It's illegal to convert to Christianity. And I'll tell you, in that context, in that context, a commitment to follow Jesus means that you're going to be rejected by your family, and it means that you are probably going to try to be killed for your faith. And can you imagine what good news is, is to read First Timothy 5, 1 through 2, and see, you don't have to be alone. You have brothers and sisters, you have moms and dads in the faith. You are meant to be part of a new family called the church. This has been tremendously good news to my wife and I. We, our, our biological families live on the East Coast. And it's tough. It's tough being away from family. But we know that our family, our family is the church. I remember just a few weeks ago, there was a couple from North Carolina that I was having a conversation with. And over and over and over again, in about 10 different ways, they were asking us the same question. And it was basically, what is it like to be away from your family? What is it like to be away from your family? What is it like to experience holidays? What is it like for your wife to be away from her family? What is it like when you have kids to be away from your family? And I finally just said, oh, just stop. Once again, okay, just, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And they are like, what, what are you talking about? Like, our family is here. Our family's here. Our family is here. Our family is the summit. Our family is here. And that is tremendously, tremendously good news for us. See, many of you, many of you, when you even hear that concept of the church being a family. When you hear that concept of the church being a family, you probably even bristle at that. When you think of yourself, like when I think about the way that I grew up, one family is enough, like a biological family is enough. I don't need a second one, thank you very much, right? right. And some of you grew up in dysfunctional homes, and I'm not talking like funny dysfunctional, Like like my younger brother lit almost lit our house on fire because in middle school, he lit his entirety of his science notes in the sixth grade on fire because he had finished his first ever geology exam. He almost lit our house on fire. That's funny dysfunctional. Unfunny dysfunctional is you growing up in a home where you had no category of how to relate to another male in a healthy way because your dad didn't show you an example. Your dad wasn't around. You had older brothers that were functionally womanizers, and you had no category for what it meant to relate to another man in a healthy way. Some of you grew up in dysfunctional homes from the earliest age, from the earliest age that you can remember, you largely had to fight and fend for yourself. And what Paul does is he comes in, he proclaims to you good news. And he says, even though, even though you may have grown up in a context where, where you would not wish your family situation on anybody, God, by his grace, has said, this is not just the hand that you were dealt But instead, he has given you a new family that when you were saved, that you were not just saved from your sin, but you were saved into a new family called the church. And by his grace, you can have the family that your heart is wired for and your heart yearns for. See, why this is good news. I mean, it's interesting. Paul gives gives kind of a case study of the way this should look. He says this at the end of verse two. He says uh, that younger women should be treated like sisters in all purity. And it's interesting when I read that, I think about for you young women, you young women who are often not treated in purity. Many of you were raised in a culture, as I heard one sort of cultural commentator put it this week, where women are either ignored or their desire to be slept with. Those are the two types of women there are. And that you're brought into a community where men don't try to take advantage of you. They don't try to exploit you. They don't try to just... Pay you attention for the sake of sleeping with you, but instead and said, "You have men, you have brothers, you have fathers, you have men in your life who will challenge you and fight for you and push you towards purity. It's totally countercultural. It's totally countercultural, and what it means then is for many of you single girls, when you date while growing up, you had to date largely in isolation, and then on your own, you had to discern whether or not a guy was a jerk or a gentleman. You have a community of guys. You have a community of brothers. You have a community of dads who can help you do that. You don't have to date in isolation. You don't have to date in secrecy. That never leads to anything good. But instead, you have men who want to push you towards purity, who love you and will fight for you to help you to discern the jerks. Because guys can do that better, can't they? The guys can always tell who the jerks are better. The girls can always tell who the hoochie mamas are. The guys can always tell who the jerks are. And so we date in community because we're a family. We're brothers and sisters, moms and dads who fight for each other for the sake. Is, is it okay that I said hoochie mama? <laughs> <Can> we? <laughs> we'll edit that part out. Um, we fight for each other for the sake of seeing each other pursue Godliness. God, by his grace, has given you a new family called the church. And you were not just saved from sin if you became a Christian. You were saved into a family called the church that is meant to live on mission together to the city. That's it. That's the Christian life. So Paul says you are meant to be a part of a family. Now, here's what he does for the next 14 verses. He talks about how the family should care for widows. Now, I had a panic attack when I read this because we want to go verse by verse by the... As far as I know, we don't have any widows in the life of our church. And so I was like, this may just go eight minutes and then we land the plane and we all go home early because I'm not sure what I'm going to say here. Even Andy on Monday was like, what the heck are you going to say? I was like, you're not making me feel any better, Andy, okay? So stop. But here's the thing I realized as I was studying this more and more. And so what Paul is saying here, the heart of what Paul is about to get into is that the implication... Of the church being a family is that the church takes care of one another okay the implication of the church being a family is that we take care of one another when we come in and we commit ourselves to one another as a church we say you're my responsibility and i'm your responsibility we are going to take care of one another and the reality is what paul's saying if you don't have widows in your church don't worry about this and jump to chapter six He's using widows as a case study because in the city of Ephesus, if there was anybody that needed to be taken care of, it was widows. It was widows. There was two things that could happen to somebody who lost their husband in the city of Ephesus. If they were young, they went into prostitution because that was the only way that they could pay the bills. If they're old, a lot of times they would starve. They didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And what Paul is saying is if you really see the church as a family, when you see your sister in need, if you see your mom in need, you say, just like my own, bio- if I had a biological sister, I would say, you will not go into prostitution to pay the bills. You will not starve and stay on the street. We are one another's responsibility here too. what Paul says is, is you look at the sister in the body in the exact same way. So Paul's going to begin by saying that because, because the church is a family, we care for each other. Here's what Paul says. He says in verse 5 this, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Verse eight, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What Paul is saying here is that because the church is a family, we take care of one another. When you come in to this body, when you become a member of the family, what it means is you're my responsibility and I'm your responsibility and we're going to take care of each other. Many of you have experienced this already. Many of you have had the blessing of experiencing this already. And for the first time in your life, you grew up in a context where you pretty much had everything taken care of you. And you have moved to the city of Denver. You just finished college. You set up some new uh, endeavor. And for the first time in your life, you cannot take care of the most basic needs for yourself. And you've had people from this family observe this, see this from afar, and say, You're my responsibility. We're part of the same family. I'm going to help you pay bills. I'm going to help you buy groceries. I'm going to let you live somewhere for free. I'm going to loan you a car. And you've experienced the blessing of being in a family that says, we are going to take care of one another. Not just that, but you, some of you have been able to experience what this means to care for people outside of the family as well. Because what we say over and over and over again is that the church is a family that doesn't just care for itself, but we care for those who are outside of the family as well. And so some of you are part of a city group that this week, for the first time, a Somali refugee family that just moved here and has no means to take care of themselves, you, you help them figure out the most basic things in their life that they could not figure out for themselves. We're launching two new city groups, and it puts us in a great place to care for the 10,000 men, women, and children that will spend the night on the streets in our city tonight. It puts us in a great place to care for, for, the, for, the, home, for, the, for the fatherless children in our city and the fact that almost half, half of kids in our city will go to bed tonight without a doubt. What it says is, is that we will, we will be a, a community, we will be a family that says we will care for one another and we will care for those who, 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 the, who society writes off as largely being damaged goods, who ri- largely writes off as just being unlovable. It's being unlovable. And why? And why? Because when that happens, when that happens, when radical generosity is shown to one another, is that the gospel is put on display to a city and tangible expressions of the love of Christ are preached to a city that's skeptical and hurting towards Christianity, have you ever seen this happen? I mean, have you ever seen, have you ever seen what it's like for the gospel to be put on display in that way? I, I remember when I when I lived back in North Carolina, I was part of a, a church family. And, and, and we just kind of were starting to spin this around. And we said, okay, what's a community of people that, that are marginalized and just aren't taken care of very well, the way that the widows weren't taken care of very well in Ephesus? And, and in Raleigh, we decided it was the single moms. We decided it was the single moms. And so we got connected to a crisis pregnancy center. And we just said, you know, whatever you guys need. And, and it was interesting because we observed. I mean, these women were the most marginalized of the marginalized. And they were the most uh, poorly taken care of women in, in, in our city, it seemed like. And it was interesting because these moms were put in really, really difficult situations and they were put in places where, you know, they're having pressure to have abortions. They're being put in places where their families basically saw them as a liability and as a scandal and nobody wanted to do anything for them. And we said, if there's any place that the church can step in, it's here. It's here. And so we came to these women who had been largely frowned upon and, and, and mocked and, and just... Abused, and we just said, what can we do? And, and we decided that we would throw baby showers. Nobody else is celebrating your baby. We'll celebrate your baby for you. You can't afford to have maternity photos taken. We'll provide a photographer to have maternity photos taken for you. And it was just the most amazing experience to see mom after mom after mom just be loved in a context where she had never been loved before. It was interesting. Just shower after shower after shower, I would go in there and I would help set up and I would clear out as soon as the pink came in and as soon as the sandwiches, like the side of a deck of cards came in. I was like, I am out of here. Too much estrogen in the room. I'm going somewhere else. But it was interesting. One time. One time, the girl's boyfriend showed up—the the expecting mom that we were celebrating. One guy who showed up, and I just—I just looked at the expression on his face as he took in that this this community of complete strangers were providing for them over and over and over again, just things that they needed in in order to take care of their baby that they could have never paid for on their own. And at the end, just with a sense of amazement, he turned to me and he's like, "Why are you people doing this for us?" I was like, it's "Simple. See, this is just a glimpse. It's just a taste." into the radical generosity that God has extended to us through Christ on the cross. It's just a taste. That's that's why we do it. We do it as a natural response, Not not because we're great people, not because we're so charitable, not because we're just great philanthropists, but instead because we're people who can't help but get over the fact that even though we were the ultimate example of damaged goods, even though we were the ultimate example of being messed up and jacked up, God, in spite of all of that, in spite of all of that, sought us out and extended us grace and kindness and love in a way that we could never wrap our minds around. But you understand? That's why we're generous. That's why we're generous. Not because you have to, not because the church, I don't know, maybe not because the church will, will explode because you do that and because we'll become famous in the city, but because the natural response to God's generosity towards you. When the Bible describes you as being an enemy of God, of being dead and being a follower of Satan, that's the way the Bible describes somebody who is apart from Christ. God first loved us, chased us down, and extended us kindness that we could never wrap our minds around or comprehend. And that generosity warms our hearts to a place that we can become generous. And what it means then is when you look at the people who are marginalized in our, in our society and in our city, when you look at people who are needy within this community, you don't look at people and you just say, you know what? If you just made better decisions, you wouldn't be in this place. And so when you start making better decisions, then you'll be fixed because the gospel comes to you and tells you that even though you were making awful decisions, God came and chased you down, not because you were such a good person, but in spite of your badness. And what it means is you don't look at the marginalized in our city. You don't look at the needy in our church and you don't look at them and you say, you know what? Once you finally start working harder, once you finally get your act together, maybe we'll help you out a little bit but instead you were so blown away by the goodness of God that was extended to you when you were making awful decisions and you were not working your way towards him that you realize that you love the unlovable because God has done it to you first. The family of God, what distinguishes the family of God is being a community of people is being a community of people who have accepted and been transformed by God's grace. And God's grace makes us generous, and it makes us just, and it makes us concerned for the unlovely, for the unlovable, for the marginalized, for the least, take, the least taken care of people in our church and in our city. It's a natural response to the gospel. So Paul says, the church is a family. The church is a family. The picture number one is that you are part of a church that believes the gospel and functions as a family. And that family takes care of each other. But, but here's, here's sort of criteria number two. And this is where it gets a little interesting. As Paul says, is that this family doesn't take care of everybody who wants help or needs help. Okay? The church is a family, but it's not a family who takes care of everybody who wants help and everybody who needs help. Alright, this is admittedly shocking, I know. Because I mean I have conversations with people all the time throughout the week and, and, and especially people who are very skeptical, especially people who are pretty much in my generation. Largely the reason they think the church should exist is, is primarily meeting physical tangible needs. Right? I mean, I have these conversations all the time and they don't really they're like, I'm not really cool with what you teach, I'm not really cool with what you believe, as long as you're helping people, and by that they mean meeting physical needs, then you know, I'm cool with you. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. But what Paul's going to show us here is the church is something more than sort of a social services department. It's more than a group of people who just meet physical needs, but rather this community exists for something more. Because we exist not just to meet physical needs, we exist to meet spiritual needs as well. Now, Paul says this. He says there's two criteria for when a church family doesn't help, okay? Criteria number one is that you don't help when it'll enable, okay? Now, look, Look at verse 11. Paul writes this. We don't help when it will enable. Paul writes this. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So there were people that came into the, there were young women who came into the church at Ephesus. They had legitimate needs. They could have had those needs met elsewhere. They had people to take care of them. They could have gotten remarried. And instead, they look at the church and are like, hey, free money is being given out. This is a great system to exploit. And so the church was giving them money. So basically, they could be professional sinners. They were paid to gossip. That's professional sinning. And so what Paul is saying is you shouldn't pay people to be enabled to continue an ungodly lifestyle. You shouldn't. You shouldn't pay people to enable an ungodly lifestyle. Many of you have experienced this. Many of you frequently help out probably family members, friends, and you're always getting people out of a bind. You're always helping people, you know, fix an unfortunate financial situation that they got themselves in. You're always helping people, you know, with the bad decisions that they made. And you've probably started to realize that you're not helping, you're hurting. You're not helping, you're hurting, because all you're doing is enabling somebody to make poor decisions over and over and over again. And you realize that sometimes the most loving thing that family can do is say no. It's saying no, or or maybe I'm not going to help you in this way, but I'm going to help you in this way. Paul's saying that you're not meant to enable. You're not meant to enable. The second criteria is this, is it's not meant to burden the church. Well, let me put it this way. The church is meant to keep the primary mission the primary mission. Look at verse 16. Paul says this, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. And what Paul's saying here is, and throughout this entire passage, what he's saying to those who are in need, he's saying, if you can find any means, any possible means outside the church to get help, do that. Do that. He's pushing them over and over and over again. Hey, if you have family, if you have biological family that'll take care of you, go to that biological family so they can take care of you. Don't burden the church. And what he says is, is not just the church shouldn't be burdened so it's freed up to take care of those who are in the most desperate need within the body and in the city, but also the, the entire thrust of the entire book is that the church is meant to protect and advance the mission of God. And the mission of God is something more substantial, is more robust than just meeting physical needs. It is that. It is that. That's a part of it. But instead what we see is there's something greater. There's something greater. And the church is responsible to advance and protect the mission, to see men and women, children who are lost, men and women, children who are separated from God by their sin, redeemed and reconciled. Not by just having their physical needs met, but having the forgiveness of their sins by the proclaiming of the gospel and the redemption and forgiveness would come. And in the end, that is a form of healing where the church says sometimes the most loving thing we can do is give you the gospel. Because it provides not just physical healing, it provides spiritual healing as well. It provides healing not just for this life, but also for the life to come. What Paul says over and over and over again is the church is meant to be relentless about pursuing that mission. Over and over and over again. A lot of times that means saying no to some really, really good responsibilities because that is prioritized. See, this creates a tension. I understand. Probably some of you are already in your mind. You're, you're already falling to one side or the other. And some of you are saying, like, no, 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 no. Like, you need to care, prioritize physical needs. And you think like a good sort of secular individual in our city who says that, yeah, the church is good as long as it meets the many, many, many physical needs that exist in our city. I'm cool with the church as long as you do that, but don't, don't bring your belief system up on me. And what I would just say to you, Especially if you follow Jesus, if you ignore it, that in the Bible, over and over and over again, that the forgiveness of sins, that the the prioritization of the preaching of the verbal gospel, the message of the gospel for the forgiveness of sins is prioritized over and over and over again, and that the church is not seen primarily as a social services institution. But then some of you are falling to the other side and you're saying, you know, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to get involved with that. I love seeing souls saved. But I would say to you, what you're ignoring is that over and over and over again, that Jesus himself, that followers of Jesus went to the most unlovable people in cities, went to the people in the most desperate need. And they went to them and they didn't just preach the gospel. They didn't just, they just hand out a gospel tract, but they met their most basic physical needs. And what Paul's saying is, is you can't take one side or the other. And it's very easy to take one side or the other. What Paul's saying is, is the church, the God's family is meant to be characterized by both. It's meant to be characterized by both. And on one hand, we meet physical needs and put the gospel on display and show tangible examples of the love of Christ to one another and to the city. But at the same time, we understand that people are not saved by being fed. We understand that people are saved by the forgiveness of their sins, by the proclamation of the gospel, and that much is made of Jesus that much is made of Jesus. This creates an amazing tension. But what Paul is saying is the church is meant to be a family that embraces this tension, is kind to one another as we pursue holding both in tension with one another and we pursue both together. A family cares for one another, but we don't always say yes to everything. We think intelligently, we think thoughtfully, we think critically, and we take things on a case-by-case basis in order to embody and to live out this tension. We do. We do. That's what Paul's saying. What the good news of this is, is God has heard your cry for community. He's heard this. He knows that you yearn for community. You were wired. To know people and to be known by people and god has provided an avid provided for you an avenue in which you can do that he says it's the church and i understand that when you were growing up the church was largely maybe an event that you went to the church was maybe something that people just did and that the criteria for which you chose what church you would and would not be about was largely what programs were offered to you and your family what paul is saying is something much larger is happening now he's saying that god by his grace has heard your cry for community he has seen the the family environment that you grew up in. And by his grace, he has given you a new family that you are meant to be a part of. And what it means then is if you moved all the way across the country from your family, I mean, nobody from Denver is from Denver. It means if you're separated from your biological family, many of you have great relationships with your biological family. And thank God for that. But what it means then, what it means then is God has given you a family here and you aren't meant to be alone. What it means if you're lonely is that God has given you the potential of a family here and you're not meant to be alone. What it means if you feel like nobody knows you is that God has given you a family here and you're not meant to be alone. This is what you were wired for. This is what you were wired for. And over and over and over again, the reason that we push you to join our family, the reason that we push you is is not so that we have somebody we report to that we give numbers to. It's not so that we can put on Twitter how big we've gotten, but instead it's because we love you. We love you, we love you, we love you. And I've personally experienced what it's like to live a life of isolation. I've personally experienced what it's like to be close to people, but not to be known by people. And I've personally experienced the amazing blessing that it is being part of a family called the church that I can say with the utmost authenticity, my family is here. My family is here in the city. Even though I was born on the East Coast, my family is here. That's what we want to be, a family that cares for each other, a family that says, you're my responsibility and I'm your responsibility. And we pursue Jesus together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for giving us a family. We thank you that life doesn't have to be lived in isolation. Uh, We live in a culture where we do like to be close to people, but we don't like to be known by people. And God, community is a really hard thing. It's something that everybody likes the idea of until they have to experience. And it's messy, it's challenging, it's difficult. But God, you have come and redeemed us. You have come and saved us, not just so that we can live our independent lives and we can have our individual quiet times, but for the sake of being saved into a new family that's called the church. God, I pray that we give ourselves to that. I pray that we would be patient with that. I pray that we would not have unrealistic expectations about that. I I pray that we would realize that we're a community of amazingly messed up people who have been loved, not because we loved you first, but because you have first loved us. And in light of that, let us be kind to each other. Let us be gracious to one another. And let us take care of one another, not just in word, but in deed also. And God, let us be characterized as being a community and a family that is for the good and the joy of the city, that loves the unlovable, who cares for the marginalized and brings the grace of the gospel to those who seem like they're in hopeless situations. And God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for saving us. And we just ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus.